0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Humble. All right, well, as we all learned in elementary school, right, an antonym is a word that has the opposite meaning of another word. So you remember this, right? The antonym of good is bad. The antonym of light is darkness. The antonym of love is is hate, the antonym of happy is sad. You know all this. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a word, and I want you, in your living rooms, to shout out loud, what is the antonym of this word? Okay, so here we go. Here's the word, pride. Yes, I can hear you through the camera. I know you said it. The word humility, all right? So that's what we're gonna talk a lot about today. This beautiful character trait known as humility. As we look at our text today, it's apparent that humility is one of the main themes in verses one through 10 of chapter four. It's one of the main themes on James' minds. And so before we get to the text, we got to define the word, all right? So what is humility? Humility, as defined by the Oxford English Dictionary, is a modest or low view of our own importance. All right, so I'll say it now for a third time. Humility is that beautiful character trait that resides in people that have a low or modest view of themselves. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about having a low view of ourselves in in terms of our importance to God. You and I are very important to the Father. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about humility, we're talking about having a low view of ourselves in terms of our priorities, in terms of our place in line. All right, so what is our place in line? Well, you know this, you've heard me say it before. First place, Jesus. Second place, others. Third place, well, that's you. Jesus, J, others, O, remember this? U-Y, J-O-Y, if you really wanna have joy in your heart, even in the midst of chaos and difficulty, you've got to find the right place in line, and that is Jesus first, then others, and then yourself. So we're talking today about being selfless. All right, so what's the opposite, the antonym of selflessness? Well, of course, it's pride, pride. Now, there's a good pride, right? And then there's a sinful pride. I'll get to the sinful pride here in just a moment. Really quick, good pride, well, what is that? Well, you know, for example, I'm proud of my three daughters and their three husbands. They are awesome, amazing people. They've made really good choices in their lives, and I love where they're at in life. I'm proud of them. That's a good pride. I'm proud of our men and women in blue. Our police officers who risk their lives every single day to keep you and I safe. That's a good pride. I'm proud of the American flag. I've got that thing flying outside of my house, why? Because of what it stands for, which is liberty and justice for all. All those things are good pride. But what is sinful pride? Well again, the Oxford English Dictionary defines sinful pride as that quality of having an excessive, high opinion of oneself or one's importance. And so the opposite of humility is pride. What is pride? It's that ugly characteristic. It's that ugly character trait that resides in arrogant people who have this very high view of themselves and look condescendingly down their noses at other people, you know, you're a lowlife or whatever. To contrast pride and humility even further, prideful people, well, they're primarily focused on themselves. You've heard me say this a lot. For prideful people, the three most important people in their lives, not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no, me, myself, and I, right? But humble believers are primarily focused on Jesus and others and then themselves. Prideful people want everything their way. It's my way or the highway, right? But humble people are willing to consider other ways if those ways are better. Prideful people are willing to hurt others for their own personal agenda or personal success. But humble people are... Well, they wanna bless others. They wanna come alongside of others and help them become a a success. By the way, one of the uh, character traits of a good boss is that boss doesn't pridefully throw you under the bus to make themselves look good. They don't pridefully step on you even more as they make their way up the corporate ladder. No, 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 no. The sign of a good boss is that man or that woman who comes to you in humility and says, hey, how can I help you be a success? (laughs) That's the kind of bosses we all want, right? And so when you think about it, the antonyms, pride, humility, man, they could not be further apart. Now, some of the recipients of James' letter had a pride problem. They desperately needed uh, humility. And we know this from the text. A lot of them are fighting, they're quarreling, they're arguing, they're disputing, back and forth, tit for tat, right? And so that kind of conduct, it was hurting both the churches they were attending and it was hurting the communities that they lived in. Somebody who's new to the Bible or new to Christianity says, you mean that Christians get into fights and quarrel? (laughs) Uh, yeah. Carnal Christians do. Carnal Christians get into nasty, ugly fights, which is why some people avoid the church like a plague. And I gotta imagine that that some of the churches that James is writing to 2,000 years ago, that some of those churches, because of their conduct, drove people away. Why? Pride. And so James knew this was wrong, and so here's what he's gonna do in verses one through 10. What he's gonna do is he's gonna call them out for their sin, that's verses one through six, and then he's gonna give them some principles to get them back on track, and that's verses seven through 10. I love the simplicity of the book of James. So where are we going today? James chapter four, one through 10. James is gonna call the people out, verses one through six, for their sin, and then he's gonna help them get back on track. That's verses seven through 10. All right, so right now, if you're looking at James, chapter four and verse one from your living rooms or your bedrooms or wherever you are, say amen. If you're driving, do not look at the Bible. All right, so here we go. What causes quarrels And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Wow. You covet. By the way, did you notice the word passions, the word desire, and now the word covet. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So how sad is this, right? Christians going back and forth, tit for tat, and in some situations their arguments became so bitter and so contentious, they committed murder. (laughs) Now I hope this was not physical murder. One commentary that I read today This guy thought it was physical murder. I have to disagree. I think it probably was hatred in the heart. But I don't say that to minimize the situation because you know this, in God's eyes, man, hatred in the heart is the same thing as murder. You remember John. John wrote about this. Check it out, 1 John chapter three and verse 15. We'll put that verse on the screen for you. Everyone who, shout out the next word, hates, hates. You know, this is why your mother told you don't use the word hate. That's a strong word, young man. It's a strong word, young lady. Well, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so apparently, some of the people that uh, received James' letter allowed their arguments to go to such an extreme that they harbored hatred in their hearts towards each other. And in God's eyes, ladies and gentlemen, in God's eyes, that's murder, Now notice also that John said that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so you gotta wonder as you're reading James chapter four, one through 10, you gotta wonder if some of the so-called Christians that James was writing to were Christians at all. So where was all this fighting coming from? Where did fighting originate? Well, the fighting and the quarreling among the recipients of James' letter came from their selfish, prideful desires. Look at it again, verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So what do you do? You fight and you Quarrel. Selfish, prideful desires, ladies and gentlemen, they originate from our sin nature. Sin nature, synonymous with the flesh. And so selfish, prideful desires originate in our sin natures and then they eventually work themselves out through our lips or through our lives, through our words or our works. They tempt us to fight. They tempt us to quarrel. And you see this with little kids, right? All right, so... One toddler takes a toy, right, from another, another toddler, and, and what's the result? <laughs> the result is fight in the nursery, right? Take the toy. The other kid goes, mine, mine, hit, hit, right? And then, wah, wah. Well, you know what's sad? Some adults do the same thing. Some adults are primarily focused on themselves, right? Me, myself, and I. Some adults want everything their own way. It's my way or the highway. Some adults are willing to hurt others for their own personal interests, their own agenda, their own personal success, and what do they do? Because they're coveting, because of their desiring and these passions are at war within them, they get into it with anyone and everyone who opposes them or opposes their point of view. We see this in homes between husbands and wives and between kids. We see this in neighborhoods, between neighbors going at it, right? We see this in workplaces, between coworkers, and we even see it at what is touted to be the happiest place on earth. <laughs> Disney World, you've seen this, right? I've seen some ugly fights in Disney World. I mean, what, what do they expect when you're standing in line for over an hour in 90 degree weather and 100% humidity, of course, right? Passions are gonna flare. When, you're, when we got a million people in front of Cinderella's castle, right, and you can't even barely move, what are they? Well, anyway, as you can tell, Disney's not my favorite place in the world but man, I've seen some nasty stuff at the happiest place on earth. All these disputes as people go tit for tat, right? Over politics, religion, racial tensions, and whether or not somebody should wear a mask at Walmart. Have you guys seen the videos of people who get violent, I'm talking about physically violent, when someone asks them to put on a mask. Now hey, we all have our view about masks, right? But what happened to debating things respectfully and civilly as opposed to pounding someone, yelling, screaming, like a bunch of little toddlers? And so what we see in our text is saddest of all, and that's fights within the church. So once again, please look at verse one. What causes these quarrels and what causes these fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, selfish passions? You desire and do not have selfish desires, so you murder, you covet, selfish coveting, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel And then look at this now at the end of verse two. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. James says, instead of fighting, instead of quarreling for what you want, why don't you ask the Lord for what you want? You know, why don't you pray? And so what's the application? The application is we need to be praying. We need to be a prayerful people. We need to pray for ourselves, and we need to pray for others, especially when a dispute is about to break out, which leads us to our next point. I hope you're taking notes this weekend, but we've gotta change our behavior from praying to praying. We'll put that up on the screen for you. We must change our behavior from praying to praying, so it's not praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, which means someone disagrees with you, right, so you go after them, you pray on them, you attack them, no, 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 we need to pray, P-R-A-Y, here it is. We need to fight our battles on our knees. Isn't that what Moses did? You know, after he sent those 12 spies into the land to spy out the promised land, to spy out the land of Canaan. So what happened in that story? Well, after going throughout the land, the 12 spies came back, but they had two different viewpoints. You guys remember this story, right? It was two against 10. 12 spies, two against 10. Joshua and Caleb against the other 10 guys, and so Joshua and Caleb returned from the land with a good report, listen to this, based on faith. They're like, hey everybody, we can do this with the Lord's help. Of course it's gonna be hard, of course there's gonna be obstacles, but it's called the promised land. That means God promised it to us, and God's a promise keeper, and so hey, we're going in, let's go. But there was a problem. The 10 other guys returned with a bad report, listen to this, based on fear. Oh, there's giants in the land! We look like grasshoppers before them! It's too hard! We can't do this! And the people, instead of listening to the two courageous, faith-filled men, listened to the 10 who were fearful. And they all freaked out. You remember about two million people came out of Egypt. (laughs) The congregation of Israel, that's a lot of people, freaked out, right? And then they turned on Moses. They started yelling and screaming, if only we had died in Egypt. Why has God allowed us to come out here so we could fall by the sword? Our wives and our children are gonna become prey. Let's choose a new leader and let the new leader take us back to Egypt. They turned on Moses. And you guys remember how Moses responded? Did he do the whole tit or tat thing, back and forth, fighting and quarreling? Did he lower himself to their level and fight back? Did he say, let me tell you, I'm gonna tell you something. After all I've done for you, and this is the way you're gonna treat me now? Is that what Moses did? Nope. That's not who Moses was. You say, well, who was he? Well, the man Moses, according to Numbers 12, verse 3, was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. (laughs) Now, don't forget, meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. We've gone over this before. Moses was not a weak man. Moses was a Meek man, he was a humble man. And because he was meek, he did not allow himself to lose control. He did not allow himself to get in the flesh and fight back with these people. Instead, he and his brother Aaron fell on their faces before the congregation of Israel and began to pray. Now, wow, wow. That's amazing, instead of attacking them, he interceded for them. Instead of praying on them, he prayed for them. That's an example that we need to follow today. Ladies and gentlemen, when people wanna fight and quarrel with us, instead of fighting back, instead of yelling back, we need to go to our prayer closet and fall down before the Lord. And we need to let the Lord do our fighting for us. Isn't that what we just sung a few minutes ago? Right, One word from you, things change. On your authority, my fight is not my own, its end is in your hands. I worship you because I know all things, must bow to your command. Man, let's not just sing words. Let's live these words throughout the week, let's go to our prayer closet, knowing that the fight is in God's hands. And I know you know, God's quite able to fight for us. And so James encourages the people to pray. But he also reminded them to pray with the right motives. All right, so now look at verse three. He says, you ask and do not receive, because you ask, Wrongly, why? To spend it on your passions. And so some of the recipients of this letter were praying with the wrong motives, all right? So that now leads us to our next point if you're taking notes, all right? The purpose of prayer is not for our will to be done. It's for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. (laughs) Isn't this how many of us have been praying since we were little kids? You remember how the Lord taught the disciples to pray? Our again, it's not just words to say. It's something to live. Our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Here it is. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not our will, God's will. In Matthew chapter 20, the mother of James and John came up to Jesus with her two sons. She knelt down before the Lord in the posture of prayer. Jesus looked at her and said, what what do you want? She said, Lord, grant that these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in the kingdom. (laughs) I always laugh whenever I think about this passage. Because Mama's motive for her boys was that in the kingdom, they would be exalted, that they would be the head honchos of heaven. You know, and man, what kind of honor would Mother get if her two boys were the head honchos of heaven? And so, Lord, let my boys have the places of prestige. Lord, let them be the center of attention. That's what you call praying with the wrong motives. We all know in the Gospels that the disciples, they argued a lot about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. I'm going to be the greatest. No, I am back and forth, back and forth. Okay, so what's that all about? It's not about humility. That's about pride. That's about prestige. That's about the center of attention. Now, we don't know this, right? I'm definitely going away from the Bible, I'm just throwing this out there, maybe this happened, but maybe James and John went to their mom and told them about the arguments that the disciples were having, and she's like, well, I'm gonna take care of this. Jesus, let my boys be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let them sit on your right hand and on your left hand, and Jesus looks down on this this, this woman, and he says, you don't know what you're asking. Then he looks over at James and John, and he says, are you guys able to drink the cup that I'm gonna drink? If you're new to the Bible, that's the cup of suffering. And they're like, we're able? They're young, they're naive, they're green. They have no idea what they're gonna experience, right? We're able, as long as we can be the head honchos in heaven. And he said, you will drink my cup. Study the life of James, study the life of John, and you'll see they drank Jesus' cup. You will drink my cup, boys, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, it's my dad's decision. All right, so these kinds of selfish prayers, they're still all around today, right? And here's why, because a lot of Christians, they approach God like he's some kind of cosmic vending machine. Wouldn't you guys agree that a lot of the stuff in a vending machine isn't very good for us? right, candy, um, soda, sugar, sugar, sugar that's gonna rot your teeth, and yet what do we do? We stand before that vending machine and we have these desires, oh I gotta have that, and we put our dollar in and we make our request. So many Christians stand before God like he's some kind of cosmic vending machine and they make the request, listen to this, for something that is not good for them God knows it's not good for them, but, but still, man, they, they so desire this. This will satisfy my desire. And then they say, at the end of their prayer, in Jesus' name, right, you gotta emphasize that word, Jesus, in Jesus' name, as if that's some kind of magic formula, right, in order that they can get what they want. Is that what praying in Jesus' name is all about? Uh, no, <laughs> what is it about? Again, I refer you to gotquestions.org, great website. Praying in Jesus' name means praying with his authority and asking the Father to act upon our prayers because we come in the name, the authority of his Son, Jesus. Praying in Jesus' name means the same thing as praying according to the will of of God, all right, and so the phrase that Jesus gave himself, if you ask anything in my name, the phrase in Jesus' name was not given to us as some kind of magic formula, right, to get our will done, it was given to us as a way to get God's will done, and ladies and gentlemen, what I'm teaching you today is correct theology that is, by the way, not taught this way in a lot of churches, but it's correct theology that lines up perfectly with what John said in 1 John chapter five, verse 14 and 15. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, are you listening? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And so maybe the reason that your prayer is not being answered is because God knows your daddy who loves you that that thing's not good for you, whether you say it in Jesus' name or not. All right, and so the recipients of James' letter, what's going on here? They're filled with pride, and their pride can be seen by their fighting and quarreling, verses one and two, and then, Their selfish prayers, that's verse three. What what were they doing? They were acting like the world. Which is why James now writes in verse four, please look at verse four, you adulterous people. Now, some people have accused me of preaching too hard, but I have never, ever called anyone in this church (laughs) adulterers. But you know, James is being inspired by the Holy Spirit here, and so apparently they needed it you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Put that little phrase on your refrigerator, by the way. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, and so some of the recipients of this letter, they became friends, quote unquote, friends with the world. What does that mean? What that means, they developed a close bond, a close emotional bond with the world. What's the world? This is now the third week that I've I've talked to you guys about this. It's not planet Earth. The world is that godless philosophy that puts man at the center and makes man's desires the the most important thing, and so what's going on in our text? The recipients of James' letter were acting like the world, they were friends with the world, they made a strong emotional bond with the godless philosophy that man's the center, his desires are most important, and what did they do? They got in bed with the world's way of thinking. They went from being in this relationship this holy relationship as children of God with an amazing father through Jesus Christ his son and now they're reverting back to the ways of the world because they're adopting the world's way of thinking. Man's at most important, he's the center. You know, it's your desires, me, myself and I and they got in bed with the world's way of thinking and that's why James calls them adulterers. And so just like physical adultery hurts the heart of the spouse who's been cheated on, so spiritual adultery hurts the heart of our God. Our God who really deserves our faithfulness. Our God who deserves our fidelity. And so strong words. But how many of you guys know that God is Gracious. James knew that. That's why James says now in verse 6, but he gives more, what's the word shouted out? Yes, grace. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. By the way, that's Christian or non Christian. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. And so what's going on here? Man, in verse five, he's yearning with a holy jealousy over us that we would humbly return to him so he can shower us with his grace. And now he's saying, listen, if you're prideful, I'll oppose you. But if you're humble, I will be gracious To you, we've got to come to the place where we're convicted by these sins of pride and selfishness and where we turn around with the help of the Holy Spirit and man, we repent. We return to the Lord. So how do we return to him? Well, James tells us now in verses seven through 10. All right, so last four verses. I hope you're reading along. Verse seven, he says, Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. All right, so James gives us six principles here on how to return to God in humility and experience revival. Okay, and so the first thing he says is you gotta submit to God. Okay, so listen to me. Don't let anything distract you right now. He called them out for their sin in verses one through six, and now he's trying to get them back on the right track, verses seven through 10. And so if this is an issue then, man, you gotta listen, not just with your ears, but with your heart. He says, submit to God. So I ask you, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior? You say, yes, pastor. And I say, yeah, great, I'm so happy for you. But here's here's my next question. Have you submitted to him as the Lord of your life? Listen, if you wanna experience true revival in your life, You need to come to the place, I need to come to the place every single day where we say, Lord, it's not about my will anymore, it's about your will, it's not about my agenda, it's about your agenda. I submit to Jesus, not just as Savior, I don't just trust him as Savior, I I submit to him as Lord, as boss, as a supervisor, as the master of my life. That's what you gotta do. And then he says, resist the devil. Peter tells us, a couple pages to the right, he says that, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so listen, we are no match for the devil. He's bigger than us, he's more powerful than us, he will tear us to shreds, unless we submit to God. And number three, we draw near to God, And then when we're close to God, now we have the uncreated, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, awesome Yahweh, God. And you need to know that that cat puts his tail between his legs and he's gotta run. Not because we're so big and bad, but because our Father is so awesome. And so submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near, number three, to God. That speaks of a close relationship with the Lord. Some of you, because it's a hard year this year, you put God on the back burner. You're not having your devotions. You're not spending time in the word. You're not spending time in prayer like you used to. You're not either coming here and sitting in a row with a mask on or at least watching from your living room and inviting some people over with you and worshiping the Lord and hearing his word. You're not doing what you used to do and you're using COVID as an excuse and it's wrong. We're still God's people, man, and in good times and bad times, we need to serve him. We need to draw near to him. Not so much like Martha, who's always going 100 miles an hour, busy, 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 getting in the flesh. Lord, tell my sister to, you know, not that, but more like Mary where we take time in our busy schedules to sit at Jesus' feet and hear his word. This is a call to repentance for some of you. You need to take God off the back burner. You need to recommit yourself to him. Submit to him. Resist the devil, draw near to God, and then purify your hearts. Psalm 66 and verse 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, I believe that the true, blood-bought, born-again believer is eternally secure. You cannot convince me otherwise. Read Romans chapter eight. But even though we can't lose our sonship or our, our daughtership, if that's even a word, with the Lord, we can lose our fellowship. And ladies and gentlemen, if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not us, and so that sin, whatever that sin may be that you're aware of, that you haven't repented of, it's there. Listen, that sin, that sin is hindering your prayer life, and so you need to go to your prayer closet, and you need to admit it and quit it. You need to First John 1, 9 it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, purify our hearts, and then mourn over our sin. We shouldn't laugh about it. We shouldn't joke about our sin. I've I've seen people do this. They joke about sin. They think it's funny. It's not funny. James says mourn, lament, weep. Follow the example of David, right? When Nathan the prophet confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. He didn't laugh about it. He didn't say, come on, Nathan, man, we're just having some fun, ha, ha, ha. No, he broke. He came under the conviction. Some of you, you need to let the conviction of the Holy Spirit back in your life. He came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and with a broken and contrite spirit he got right with the Lord. He penned Psalm 51. I'm not gonna take the time to read it now. You guys can read that later today. But listen, if, you, if this is you, if I'm talking to you right now, and there's a sin in your life, and you haven't repented of it, go to your prayer closet, whatever that might be, get along with God, and read Psalm 51 as your words to the Father, and get right with the Lord. And then finally, we gotta humble ourselves. And so as I said in the introduction, we gotta come to that place where we have a modest or low view of our importance. Now again, I gotta tell you this, I'm not talking about our importance before God. You and I are very important to God. I'm talking about having a low view of ourselves in terms of our priorities and our place in line. I'm talking about being selfless. So I leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity, please read it if you haven't read it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Man, if you get to that place in your life, you know the Spirit of God has done a work in you, but you know you probably won't even be aware of it. And so humility is not thinking less of yourself. You're a child of the King if, you're, if you belong to Christ. You're a child of the King. You're made in the image of God. You're worth is through the roof. It's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. It's not about your worth. It's about the place that you choose to put yourself in line. And what place is that? J, Jesus, he gets first place. Oh, others. We think about them, we serve them. And then, why you? If you will not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and you actually apply what we went through this weekend, your life will be filled with amazing joy. I love you guys. Stay safe in the storm. I'm gonna turn it over now to Pastor Andrew.